the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. This is your host, Cooper Cherry. I uh, want to acknowledge our sponsor, the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to mention that if you're you're enjoying the show and you'd feel the need or feel up to it, uh, it'd be great if you would uh, toss me a dollar or two on Patreon. Uh, you can find me at uh, www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. That stands for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. But I'm... Uh, Always thrilled to have uh, Mr. John Zichterman of Beep Beep Lettuce fame, the parking lot crusader <laughs> of truth himself. Uh, but uh, welcome back to the show, John. It's been a minute. Oh, yeah. I'm always glad to be on the show, Cooper. And uh, yeah, it has it has been a second. Like I was telling you a little bit pre-show, I haven't been doing uh, as much theory-related stuff recently. So I'm really thrilled to be on and to get a chance to dive back into Stirner and Deleuze and all of that good shit. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good article for us to look into. So just uh, really before we jump into like the meat of the article, I- I'm kind of curious because personally, so, okay, there's been a lot of conflict on my Discord between the, the Hegelians and then like the Deleuzeans and the anarchists and like the accelerationist quadrants. Okay. So there's, That's like, interesting. <laughs> there's a lot of tension and, and so forth. And so... Even though I'm not like I think, you know, Hegel is absolutely an important thinker, and I do want to read the phenomenology and 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 so forth, and definitely like respect Hegel. Uh, mm-hmm. I respect philosophy, you know, in general, but I'm I don't know that I quite have the faith in I guess in in dialectics that I see a lot of other people, in the, and typically they're more like Marxist oriented or or like statist oriented than I am. So I'm just curious to get your kind of broad take on Hegel and maybe how that relates to Deleuze and anarchism and, and sort of that thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, there's a lot more nuance to it. And I think there's a lot more interrelatedness of schools of thought than people think. Like there doesn't yeah. necessarily need to be so much friction, I think, between like what you would consider like the post-structuralists and the postmodernists and more modernist thinkers, because it's like, you know, sometimes you have the Marxists saying like, oh, this is the historical, you know, world material dialectic or whatever the phraseology becomes. And then sometimes yeah. you have post-structuralists being like, well, no, it's actually, it's all contingent and it's, it's all, you know, non-deterministic and, uh, or, or pluralistic or whatever. And it's like, well, in a lot of ways, you know, those things aren't 100% contradictory to each other. Um, I, I really like what Todd McGowan has been doing with Hegelian interpretation and viewing it as something that's like always a deepening of contradiction and never like an urge to get that, that quick resolution that like contradictory forces, internal forces like suddenly are no longer in contradiction with themselves. Uh, I think that that's a good instinct to have. And I think that it, 
it plays into, I don't know. I think, I think that in a way Hegel and Stirner and like, you know, the Camus, when I was very first reading him in high school and first getting exposed to, uh, um, philosophy, even with the myth of Sisyphus, he's kind of saying, you know, like there's never going to be a point where you're not pushing that boulder up the hill. And whether that's like the suffering of life or the contradiction of ideology or the contradiction of world historical material conditions, I think that instead of trying to develop a narrative using whatever philosophical tools are your favorites, instead of trying to develop a narrative that has a cl- you know, clear beginning, middle and end, you should always realize that there is only really like one continuous middle, right? It's all contingent on all of the other parts. So um, I don't know if that makes me uh, a materialist or uh, a pluralist, or uh, I like to call myself a nominalist. I think that that, uh, I think that that does the trick, but I don't even know, you know, I couldn't tell you for sure. Well, see, I think even, and I did a podcast with uh, Andrew Koch about his kind of like analysis of materialism from, I think, Kant forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that really post-structuralism is is materialist. It's a different, it's not dialectical materialism necessarily right. or like whatever. Like even I think Derrida kind of acknowledges like some debt of like we're sort of even uh, trapped, in, trapped in Hegel or, you know what I mean, to some degree. Yeah. But I think that it's a it has absolutely it's anti essentialist it's not it's material it's just a different like it's an extension almost of and really I think Marx's political economy I think with you know kind of that simplistic model of base and superstructure and that kind of dialectic well there's I think a lot more to it that the post structuralists are doing and really like taking a uh, materialist approach to the development of language and like. Foucault's project is like a materialist analysis of the development of category, whether it be like sexual category or, you know, sanity or what have you. So I think that that's something that I don't think a lot of like Marxists or materialists really acknowledge or realize. And I think that's an important point. But I mean, that's a little bit outside of kind of this discussion of like what dialectics is and like what the validity is and all that. I think it's a, I think it's a valid thing to think about. I think it's an important thing to think about because in the Twitter sphere, which is where I get most of my (laughs) input about a lot of these things, I I have noticed that it seems like as of recently, like compared to 2016 or whatever, just as a, as a benchmark, it seems like the, the, the quote unquote historical materialist Marxists are starting to become more open to the idea of a theory of subjectivity that is complementary to their materialist analysis. And I think in a lot of ways, the more psychoanalytic or like people who would describe them as less directly political or or having less of a political bent in their work even are starting to open themselves up to the idea that like they need a, a historical political and historical economic and social analysis to back up their theory of subjectivity. It's like both of these things exist in the world, right? Right. Even if they're just as abstract categories, they're abstract categories that people respond to and that that turn wheels in society. So you have to acknowledge them as real, at least in that sense. Uh, So there's... I don't know. There's a complementarity that I think is really, really overlooked. And at the the risk of sounding like somebody who's just like, well, why don't we just cut the baby in half? Uh, (laughs) I I think that there is something to be learned. There's there's a discourse to be had uh, between those two factions. I don't think that they really are truly in that much opposition to each other. They're just kind of like 
not quite adjacent enough to touch. And so there's a little bit of extra friction. Right. Or they're describing, so, I think more so in the aspect of the dialectic, that there's a different way to look at things. And maybe there's a lot of overlap as far as what Deleuze, for example, is saying and what Hegel is saying. And there's not necessarily like an, an opposition, even though I think on the surface they're kind of opposed. Yeah. And I well, think maybe even Deleuze would acknowledge uh, being sort of anti-Hegelian in orientation. Right. Well, and everybody wants to use their cool tool to analyze everything, right? Like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a yeah, nail. So if, if you're a Hegel scholar, you're going to try and apply dialectics to everything. And like, is everything in the world dialectical? I don't necessarily think so. And, you know, if you are like a Lacanian scholar, you might try and apply like the petit objet and like look at things. Is this an interpolation of the mirror stage or whatever? And it's like, you know, maybe... Lacan's theory isn't even really applicable here at all, you know? So I don't know. I think that in, in my meager exposure to like firsthand documents and, and actually sitting down and reading and getting into philosophy, it's like, and, and especially listening to podcasts where people like break it down for me, which makes learning about it much easier. Uh, I've noticed that like, it doesn't seem like there's ever going to be a magic bullet. Like there's right. never going to be like a Spinoza two, you know, two, two monist, two pluralist. And it's just going to, he's going to solve all of the problems of philosophy once right. and for all. Agreed. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Agreed. And I think that that's maybe what's frustrated me m most is in these arguments between the Hegelians is like, oh, well, the answer is always, you know, these sort of things are going to work themselves out dialectically. And I'm like, well, that implies to me teleology, but then they're saying, well, Hegel doesn't have a teleology. And then I get really confused on like, what what's the <laughs> point of dialectics? If like, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense that just due to the way that we experience time and the way that history works, it's like, yes, like you're born situated in a material circumstance both, you know, whatever material and ideologically. And so in the, in the battle to try to create your own sort of subjectivity, you're almost, you're always reacting to a pre-existing, um, whatever set of circumstances. So in that sense, I can feel like there's a, a tension, right? A dialectical right. tension, but I, I don't know if that, ever resolves itself to you know what I mean it's just like maybe a side of contradiction that is like permanent no matter what yeah I think it's a site of ongoing contradiction and I think even in you know Hegel was known to be a rambler and to come up with philosophical ideas as he was speaking and to literally do his theory sometimes as he was lecturing in front of the classroom an idea would strike him and he would come up with he would he would start to articulate it and it would take him sometimes a long time to actually get all the way around to what the point was and i think that's a bit indicative of how dialectics should be applied right it's it's observational it's a heuristic tool it's a, you notice right. patterns of like tension and release and you notice patterns of like uh very slight differences to the same contradiction being instantiated over and over and over again. It kind of has a slow evolution and it, it's a familiar feeling philosophical idea, right? Because it essentially mimics like the human life. Like you have rough days and you have better days. And sometimes your days are full of things that don't click together. And sometimes everything seems to be flowing smoothly. So there's, I think there's just a, 
there's a very humanist element to it that's readily accessible. And I think people have a little bit more trouble getting at concepts that they would write off as nihilistic, you know, like, yeah. like oh, what yeah. Stirner or Nietzsche or Camus oh, sure. would have yeah, to or say. Or Deleuze even. I yeah, think. or Deleuze, exactly. Yeah, there's a definitely, I think there's a lot of, uh, of yeah, just kind of face value rejection. I think most notably when it comes to Stirner, um, because people think egoism is like, I do what I want and, and fuck you. <laughs> you know <laughs> well, what I mean? It's not like the memes have helped a whole lot. True. But I think that there is, there's an important connection there, right? Because the, why do we love that emotion so much as a human being? Why, why, when we see a cartoon character act in the most <laughs> the grotesquely self-interested manner, we laugh at it. We're like, oh, that's hilarious. Look how cunning he is. Look how selfish he is. Look how greedy he is. Because there's an element of us that is just like that all the right. time, right? Like, and we're going to get into this in, in the article that we talk about too, but it's like people think I think everybody has this this little voice in the back of their head that's like, if you try and dig below your sense perception, there's nothing there. That's that's like your your very most seed point, your root point for interfacing with the entire world, for being a being in space. And so, but then they start to think, well, wait, if sense perception is where it all starts, then doesn't that just like leave the door open for chaos? Doesn't that just mean that like that nothing is really controlled by anything? It's like, well, no, there's a whole litany of contingent systems and like interrelating phenomena and everything out here in the world that you still have to navigate and you still have to develop, you know, a contingent ethics and a contingent morality. You have to look around and figure out what's acceptable, figure out what is acceptable to you, which is always a hard question to ask um, for a lot of people. But it's like, you have to do those things because there's not ever going to be like a magic plan from the sky. There's never right. going to be a dude who writes the right things to do down on a stone tablet. And it's and even if you, and, and we get into this in the thing too, like even a lot of people will read Sterner and be like, he did it. He solved it. And Sterner would tell you like, I haven't solved fucking anything. I just highlighted an issue. A lot of people weren't willing to look at before. And there's no, there's, there's a shying away from it. And it, it, it makes sense that people who are interested in anarchism would also be interested in post-structuralism, I think, because they both get written off for their surface level connotations, which are of course not like a real window into the content of what they actually are. Absolutely. So I should mention the article that we did read for the for the episode is titled Empiricism, Pluralism, and Pol Politics in Deleuze and Stirner, authored by uh, Saul Newman, who, uh, again, we will hopefully be getting on the podcast soon in the next couple of months, Ooh, uh, very which nice. I'm hella excited about. Yeah, I just watched an hour and a half long video he has up on on YouTube about Sterner today. Uh, I tried to get it to work a bunch of times, but the audio was always messed up. It like wouldn't play on my phone. And then today I had a, a second monitor hooked up to my computer and the speakers on the second monitor would play it for some reason. <laughs> Weird. So I got to hear his delightful Australian accent. Yeah. You know, what's funny is his voice reminded me of uh, like that guy. He played Murray on. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> the, he played um, Murray on uh, Flight of the Concords yeah. a little bit. He did, of course, he didn't have like the high register, like New Zealand kind of more like uh, tinny kind of sound. But yeah, he he's, he's Murray's us. academic older brother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. No. Because um, I was like, oh, this voice sounds fucking familiar. It, it's fucking Murray. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just diving into this, and I think. 
maybe we should mention too. I mean, we've discussed Sterner and, and Deleuze before on the podcast. Uh, I think maybe even our last like episode that we did together. If yeah. not, there's definitely like a previous one mm-hmm. we've done. Um, and just to start us off, uh, Newman has a great quote about Sterner and, and the dialectic that I'm going to read directly from the text. And then we'll see if maybe we can unpack this thing. Because there was like, there was a number of great quotes, uh, and this is a relatively short piece, that I liked. And I kind of feel like there's something that I identify with them, but I can't really explain them or I can't really flesh out why I like it. Yeah, so. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty thickly written stuff. Um, he doesn't hold back on the technical jargon. And I did, I found myself Googling uh, more than a few different phrases. He gives you a pretty good background on most of the stuff, though. Yeah. But um, whenever reading philosophy, I find that I, ha- I usually have to read something like two or three times before I really get it. Because the first pass, you catch yourself slipping into that space where you don't quite understand uh, a word or a phrase. And then the next few sentences, you're still on autopilot thinking about yeah. that. And you don't really absorb what's written in those sentences. So... Yeah, but yeah, this, here, let's look at this. Th- this quote, I think, it's metal, but I can't explain why it's metal. <laughs> Deleuze's thinking may be seen as the logical extension of Stirner's attempt to exercise the specters of idealism and essentialism from thought. Deleuze, in his work on Nietzsche, refers to Stirner as the dialectician who reveals nihilism as the truth of the dialectic. And that, I think, I don't, like, that sounds fucking cool, but I have right. no idea what that means. Well, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Stirner and whether he was really anti-Hegelian or just a Hegelian who kind of took everything to its logical extension. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think, and this is kind of, I, I share, I, at least partly in this view, that what Stirner was really doing was he was sitting there and Hegel was saying stuff and he was like, well, you know, that all sounds well and good, but it doesn't really you know, amount to anything at the end of it, I'm still here and I still have the same impulses and the same creative, nothing inside of me that I don't fully understand. And I'm never going to be able to feel like a firsthand connectedness with this, you know, with this capital H humanity or this capital S state, or even this capital O organization that I'm part of to be here in this classroom. So I think at the end of the day, Sterner was just kind of being a bit cheeky in, in, I think he read ahead, right? Like Hegel wanted to read the book line by line and, and, and Sterner skipped to the last page and he was like, Oh, it ends on a cliffhanger. None of this, <laughs> none of this culminates, you know, none of this amounts to much. Yeah. And cause I don't think even in the ego book that he mentions dialectics or really uses any of the kind of Hegelian terminology directly. No, yeah, Sterner writes in, I mean, maybe this is just the way it's translated, but Sterner writes in very plain spoken language using a lot of short, you know, common words. And I don't know if he he wrote it in low German or high German or whatever, but. Uh... I'll, I'll finish the quote out. Sterner turns the dialectic on its head, revealing as its culmination in essence, not the spirit of rationality, but the egoist, the corporeal, unique individual. The dialectic for Sterner produces not the birth of grand ideals, but their death. Rather than the, being the overcoming, or rather than being the overcoming of difference and singularity, the dialectic is in fact their final triumph. 
which again, yeah, like all of this sounds fucking awesome. And <laughs> I kind of get a germ of the idea that he's saying, but I don't, I could not un- under explain what the fuck this means. I think it's just, I think in, per- it, in particular, like this line, um, how, like how is the dialectic, the final triumph of difference and singularity? And maybe I'll just have to ask Saul when I get him on the show to explain this. Well, I, I think maybe it's got a bit to do with that idea that Hegel's dialectic is always a deepening of contradiction, right? right. So there's never going to be like a perfect culmination of the dialectic that leads to the perfect Prussian state, for instance, yeah. uh, which Hegel wrote you know, later that he thought that was the culmination of the dialectic. And of course, that uh, guaranteed he would keep getting paid. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, there's, there is, I think, in the dialectic, if if you if you really think about things dialectically and you bring Hegel's idealism down into the everyday world and you look at a, the the contradictions in you know your personal life and in your material relationships and in your relationship of idealism like to the state and to other people, it doesn't actually really all gel together into this capital H humanity, right? Like there's all of this contradiction isn't like the magic force that keeps us all tied together. It's actually real contradiction. It's real friction. It's yeah. real turmoil. And I think that there's a, an essentialism and a, and a, and a wash and a hand waving that Hegel likes to do where he says, and that's all very well and good that it's like that. Cause that's just the way it is. And Sterner's like, well, if that's just the way it is, then it's not all one homogenous thing thing at the end of the day it's a it's a insanely detailed web of particularities all interfacing with one another and maybe that's what this whole idea of this quote i think this is even a direct quote from sterner or no wait let's say the dialectician who reveals nihilism as the truth of the dialectic maybe that's what i was getting at earlier when i was saying well yeah there could be yes there may be a dialectical tension in whatever but it's not something that ever resolves itself. It's just that's how history sort of moves just because of the way that we're kind of progressing through through time or something like that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's a, that, that ties into like uh, Todd McGowan's uh, famous hot take about Marxism, which is that it is a right-wing deviation from Hegelianism, <laughs> which yeah. I find to be one of the most brain blistering takes, but also (laughs) fairly convincing because I think in a lot of ways, Hegel would have told you like, you know, the idea that you need to come to some like cauterized conclusion beyond which there is no longer uh, friction or or contradiction is just foolish. Like you should know that that's never going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's just replacing heaven with the resolution of contradictions you're just replacing the rapture with some utopia that's free of internal contradictions forever and ever and i think in a lot of ways sterner wanted to tear down that idea just as much as he wanted to tear down you know feuerbach taking capital g god and capital c church and replacing it with capital h humanity right yeah i think you might be onto something and i think maybe too like i'm seeing maybe that's the connection for like McGowan in particular, since he also, you know, is such a fan of Lacan, like that's mm-hmm. Lacan's thing is to kind of like reveal this nihilism at the heart of the, of the uh, dialectic too. Yep. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I don't know, there's a special kind of, 
of like sense of humor or something that you develop when you get really comfortable with the the nihilism at the the heart <laughs> of the dialectic, uh, and and I think that it. I don't know. I think it's really productive, and I think that it has the power to keep you jovial. I'm sorry. It has the power to keep you jovial and like amicable and agreeable, even during very very stressful situations. Um, and it's not always going to be like you know something that is just like a tonic. Like oh, I have I I drank this acknowledgement of the nihilism of contradiction, and now I have ten more contradiction acknowledgement points. But like <laughs> it does, it helps you out in like different situations, and it can help you keep a level head over the long run. And that's important if you're going to do something like serious philosophical inquiry. So to, to move on, we're going to look at what exactly this whole idea of empiricist pluralism is, which was uh, somewhat of a new term for me, but I think kind of interesting because I remember taking like my intro to philosophy course in college way back. And uh, David Hume was, kind of a big influence early on just in his like kind of oh, skepticism yeah. but he was kind of like an empiricist if i'm if i remember correctly yeah i feel like he's one of the big because they were there was a whole school of like the scottish empiricists yeah right in the right. 16th century okay. and he so was I, one I of the premier right. figures <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, it's been a long time but i feel like I, i'm on to something um yeah i'm anyways. a big fan of of david hume i feel like uh all of the new atheists could really do themselves a favor and pick up some David Hume and learn how to be a little bit more humble about the way that you, you know, tear down, you know, all of these amazing like ideological things. It doesn't make you this super cool guy. You know, David yeah. Hume still went to church every Sunday, even though he was, you know, through reading his work is like, he's probably a atheist through and through, but like he wanted to have friends. You don't have to be a dick just cause you know better than someone like yeah, I think he was kind of like a, he had like some weird racist shit that I've heard about. And uh, yeah, I mean, 16th century, not to just hand wave it away, but that was like five days ago. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm going to read just a little bit from, from, um, from Newman just to kind of clarify what he's getting at with this sort of empiricist pluralism idea. Hell yeah. When, when Deleuze said, I am an empiricist that is a pluralist, what did he mean? Empiricism is a valorization of the corporeal, sensual, and material over the abstract, ideal, and supernatural. Pluralism emphasizes plurality, multiplicity, and difference over unity, sameness, and centrality. Empiricist pluralism may be seen, then, as the philosophical assertion of the material principle of difference and plurality. Deleuze and Stirner in different ways are exponents of this very principle. Right. I like this because I think when people think about what it means to be an empiricist, they think that that means that you are a materialist, right? Which I, I think is true. Um, but I think that a lot of materialist philosophers throughout history have irresponsibly made unnecessarily wide categories, not developed sharp enough language to talk about the details of things, and not really had a well-developed enough theory of subjectivity to supplement their historical analysis. So by zeroing in on pluralism, the idea that may, instead of like, I guess, because it stands in opposition to monism and dualism, right? Like there's one, there's two, and there's just many. There's like everything and it there's no interconnected web of it and i think that that's really important because i think that 
there's a trap that a lot of materialist thinkers fall into unwittingly of making things more monistic or dualistic uh, when in fact there are a lot of moving parts and there's like a striated you know gradient of, right. of different forces and yeah. different relationships happening i definitely agree because i think for me you know going back to this idea of marx being a right-wing deviation of hegel it's like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um god damn it <laughs> what was i gonna say oh so whenever marx i think becomes whenever marx and dialectical materialism get it like this whole idea of scientific socialism is where I get, I think Mark, that's where I think the right to me, that's the right wing deviation is this appeal to science and like rationalism and kind of this modernist project. That's the right wing deviation in a sense. Maybe not, maybe that's a bad interpretation of, no, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you that I think that take is going to ruffle some feathers, but oh, I'm, sure. I, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think that, and of course, and, and, and to acknowledge what I'm sure many Marxists would say about this is that, of course, the term science didn't really mean the same thing to Marx and yeah, Engels true. that it does to us today. It was like, you know, anything that was that involved a lot of study and hard work like and writing down a lot of things was sort science. Of methodology to it. Yeah. yeah. But um, they did make their their philosophical and their social investigation very rigorous, which I appreciate, but there is kind of a, a scientism to it, right? There's yeah. a, a stripping of everything down and, and you're trying to develop control groups and like notice all of the different, you know, differences in input in the situation between different iterations of revolutionary activity, different iterations of oppression and stuff. And you're just never going to be able to do that. So what you have to do to get to that point is you have to kind of cut the edges off things. You have to turn a rhombus into a square sometimes and take a little bit of nuance out so that all your pieces can fit together and you can actually do the social calculus it takes. And I'm not saying that's bad, that's very, very good. And I think that anybody with a brain knows that like Marx doing that contributed vastly oh, to absolutely. our understanding of the world. Yeah. But that's not the be all end all of having a historical analysis, right. right? Like being materialist, even I think Marx would agree with this, like being materialist means always digging deeper and never being satisfied with the, the level of detail or like the historical level of resolution, you know, where we're looking at history through a 1080p lens that is sourcing information that a guy was writing down with a, a, a fucking bird feather dipped <laughs> in in an inkwell. So, um, and I think that the, the translation of ideas works kind of the same way. When I read Hegel and I think about the, the way that he's structuring his thoughts, they have a little bit of a vinyl crackle and a tape hiss in my mind <laughs> to remind me that like, this is right. This is old. This is something that needs to be adapted a little bit, turned into future funk or vaporwave or something yeah. in order to be made relevant again. But if you do that, if you take something and you do recontextualize it and you do update it with the information that you have and you do add layers of nuance and add layers of you know social relevance and historical relevance to it, you will continue to get a better product. And, and that's what I'm really interested in at the end of the day is like, not like was Marx right, was Stirner right? It's like, how valuable are they to me? Yeah. How can I make them my property, essentially? Yeah, definitely. But also like acknowledging, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is just like, the contributions of Marx and materialism that he did are like, they're absolutely essential to, 
you know, every other thinker that, you know what I mean? You can't right. have, yeah, exactly. you can't have Deleuze or any of the post-structuralists without, without Marx. And we've walked so far away from Hegel that we've circled around the globe and met him again. <laughs> <laughs> but to move on from a, to a important point that the uh, article makes that I think is really interesting. I hadn't ever really thought about this is, and this is really diving into the concept of difference and difference itself and the distinction between real difference. So I guess like material difference and a conceptual difference or an, an idealist version of difference. Um, so I'm going to read directly from the piece here. Mm -hmm. What is the concept of difference? One which is not reducible to simple conceptual differences, but demands its own idea its own singularity at the level of ideas. I argue that this non-conceptual difference that demands its own singularity may be theorized in terms of Stirner's idea of uniqueness. Uniqueness, as we shall see, is a form of individuality that cannot be reduced to a general idea. Therefore, both, therefore difference for both Stirner and Deleuze is non-conceptual and material. It is a real difference as opposed to conceptual abstraction of difference that denies corporeality. This crucial distinction emerges through their critique of representation. Yeah, and this is one of the things, um, and I'm glad that even in the article, uh, Newman ties it back to Stirner's concept of uniqueness, because I, I always had a bit of trouble understanding that, and I always had to think really hard about it. And I, was, and I had to think really hard about this passage when I read it as well, and it got me thinking about and this won't be a new concept to anybody who's spent a lot of time thinking about Stirner, but there are a lot of similarities between his concept of the unique and the way that he references the unique and uh, the Tao from uh, Taoism. And it's like the Tao that can be named, you know, the Tao that can be uttered is not the true Tao. It's a, th it's, it's a thing. It's an, it's a sense. It's a, it's a sense perception that exists. But if you try and, tease it out and give it a name, then it kind of, it stops being that and starts being a representation of that. It's like when Stirner says, you know, if I call you Ludwig, but that's not what you are, you are not a Ludwig. Like I couldn't get a line of Ludwigs and they would all right. be a bunch of different versions of you. Like Ludwig is just a name I have for you. It's just a little it's piece of shorthand. Yeah. yeah, it's an abstraction. And so I think that that's kind of what they're getting what Saul is getting at here in terms of non-conceptual difference it's like if we know things to be different because we have a, a conceptualization of like why exactly they're different or we've hammered it all down to the details that's not the real difference the real difference is in the difference between our sense perception when we experience one or the other when we are in contact with it and of course we don't have words and i think that's what it says here it says its own idea, its own singularity at the level of ideas. Because what is a singularity at the level of ideas? It's a, it's a feeling. It's like when, when, when something in the way a building is shaped, or you walk into a room and it smells a certain way, and it, and it triggers a certain feeling that you remember from childhood, or, or it takes you to a certain place, and you don't really have words for it. I think that's, that's a bit what we're getting at here. And I think that the importance of remarking on that is that that's, that's truly, we're trying to establish that that's the base level of sense perception 
beyond which there is nothing. There's like that's not a construction that lives on top of something. That's the that's the the binary code level of our computer programming. Yeah. That's the lowest you can go. And that's where the maybe the empir- the element of empiricism is is coming from. Yeah. And I think that's where it all ties together. Because I think like what what about empiricism necessarily makes you a pluralist, right? I think it's that that di- that differentiation that you automatically have that doesn't have words between different sense perceptions, and I think that that's deeply tied also into. Um, oh my god, I lost the thread. Uh, that 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 not having a name for those sense perceptions is tied to what um, Stirner is talking about. No, I lost it. This it's so dense. I, I start to get thinking about um like in terms of creative and, nothing, is that kind of Yeah, in terms of the creative nothing, right. You like you're always this overflowing thing and the second that you try and give yourself a definition, like when you turn inwards and try and analyze yourself, you can impose constructs on yourself that kind of bridge some gaps and kind of make a rough picture of who you are, but it's not you and even in the process of making that you are superseding it, right? Because you can't build something separate from yourself that you're not superseding and are no longer attached to. Your self-image isn't you. It's a construction that right. you've made of yourself. Damn, that's interesting. Uh, so I was actually, uh, I, you just, this is totally, this is a bit unrelated, but I wanted to mention okay. this earlier and I kind of forgot and got off track. But it, it kind of ties in a little bit is, so I don't know how to really flesh this out specifically, but I have had this inkling that the dialectic itself or dialectical tension is rooted in linguistics and in the sense of like a subject versus a predicate. And that that gap or that is where that's where like the dialectical tension kind of arises from is our very linguistic you know, element of that subject predicate, just in the way that our various sentences and the way that we communicate. So it's almost like the, the act of using language and speech or even like nonverbal communication, just the act of bringing communication out into the physical space is automatically a flattening of it. Right. And maybe it's the flattening of it that creates these nice, neat, demarcations oh now it's 12 o'clock oh now it's one o'clock when it really was just then and now or whatever uh even that is just a demarcation so you get these nice neat clip points and you get these like they're almost like commercial breaks and then you're sitting at one and you're, you're at this nice neat demarcation oh it's lunchtime or whatever and then you drift away from lunchtime now you're suddenly lost in a sea of uncertainty but you know there's another demarcation coming and maybe that tension created by language is what creates the structure that our brains kind of fill in with a dialectical tension of understanding and and that's where we kind of use use the margins of life to kind of actually learn and like get a little bit of uh, get a little bit outside of ourselves so we can have a different kind of sense perception. Or even to take this kind of a, even a different direction, or I, I don't know if this even jives with that idea, that kind of like subject predicate kind of duality is through Lacan. Like Lacan is talking about the sort of the lack at the heart of subjectivity. Like maybe that lack, that gap is between subject and predicate, between subject and object. 
Yeah. Well, I think the we want to regard ourselves as objects, right? Wouldn't life be easier if I could take all my subjectivity and flatten it into an object that I was sure about that yeah. I was had control over? But of course, that's not possible because in order to have control over it, I would have to be this other creative nothing thing that superseded it and then was like holding it up like a puppet. How is that any different from me fucking piloting my body already, like existing and piloting my brain already, talking and speaking and interacting in the world? So I think that there is, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's that 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 distance that makes the creative nothing not approachable, that makes the Tao that cannot be named the true Tao, that makes us a lacking subject in the first place and that generates that tension where we're always in a process of desiring and then like overcoming or achieving or trying to earn that desire, trying to, trying to point our drive in the direction of that desire and then either failing or succeeding, but succeeding and not being satisfied, having an imperfect success. Like every, isn't like to Lacan, isn't every victory a Pyrrhic victory, right? Like yeah. there's no such thing as a, as, as a non Pyrrhic victory. And I think to kind of view this through the lens of uh, of Deleuze and maybe Spinoza, it's like, well, there's a, which I kind of honestly have really enjoyed the kind of Spinoza's monism element, uh, particularly through Deleuze. But mm-hmm. so there's like, we're all one substance, but it's subjectivity that is, so we're like the universal already trying, like subjectively experiencing itself. And we're having to do that through the uh, through the veil of language, through representation, rather than the actual real itself, which is like this weird position to be in. You know what I mean? As a yeah. as a being to try like we are all one thing, but we're different. <laughs> we're, there's like endless difference. Yeah, for the Deleuze thing that and, we are is pluralism is difference. But I think in a way, right, Deleuze would sort of reject that because he wouldn't want difference to be turned into this flattened thing. Yeah. It's, it's not an overarching metaphysical thing. It's, it's also particular in its way, right? Like part of, part of pluralism in particularism and nominalism for that matter is that like, it doesn't just apply to things. It also applies to itself. And I think that that's touched on a little bit in this piece where it's like the, the difference should not become like a, a universal law that, that presupposes everything else, but the difference is just what it is. It just exists in the spaces between the differences of things. And to a further point, I think that in a lot of ways, monism and pluralism or nominalism are just kind of two ways of saying the same thing, right? Like what we're touching on in terms of like whether difference is a a metaphysical condition of the universe or if it's just a metaphysical outcome of of the way things are interacting in the universe is a bit a a question of semantics, really. Really? It's just a question of definitions. And it, it, it ties back into that like, oh, we have an imperfect language that we're trying to speak and we're trying to make these demarcations and make them mean something. But the fact that, you know, pluralism and monism, which should be the most opposite things are just overlapping wildly, uh, is, is a bit revealing. And I think that that's why it's good to have dialectical and non-dialectical, uh, analysis 
uh, in different spaces because I don't think dialectical analysis could come to that conclusion necessarily or or not the forms of it that I see most widely popularized anyway. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll kind of interrogate this. I'm going to read a bit more from the text on this this non-conceptual difference. And I think this last line is is a jumping off point that I'm super mm-hmm. interested in, so I'm going to read this. Um, paradoxically, this conceptual difference from De, for Deleuze facilitates resemblances and gener, generalities rather than difference itself. Non-conceptual difference is difference that escapes the conceptual order. In Deleuze's words, it expresses a power peculiar to the existent, a stubbornness of the existent in intuition, which resists every specification by concepts, no matter how far this can be taken. It always exceeds the idea, seeking its alterity, its outside, which sounds like fucking acceleration as Nick Land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there for a minute. But uh, this last line, I think, is, is super interesting. In the context of dialectics, to affirm the subordinated side of the hierarchy often restores the hierarchy itself in an inverted sense. Right. So the idea that maybe if there's just something that needs to be done to balance the scales of some kind of, you know, let's say dialectical tension, what you're really doing is you're just reaffirming that dialectical tension, but with the weights on the other side, right? Because the tension doesn't just come from the fact that two forces aren't evenly weighted against each other. If they were evenly weighted against each other, there would still be tension. It would just be even. Um, so I think maybe in in a way, what Deleuze is getting at here is that you can't just balance out contradictions. If you want to stop experiencing the tension of a contradiction, the best way to operate is to get outside of it. Um, get in a position where it makes the conditions of the contradiction irrelevant, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's so. interesting. I think so. Um, maybe it's, I think it's later on too in the, in the passage, we may get to this. So what I thought, um, I even thought this passage was going to touch on this was like this, something else that I'm makes me skeptical of dialectics is this kind of very rote binary um, opposition thing that I think maybe just maybe just from my Deridian experience and like love of Derrida is very skeptical of like okay these peculiar like black and white this is one side of the dialectic and this is the other and like okay well, how does that play into how does subjectivity play into that because obviously you're making a choice at what criteria you're even looking at to develop your dialectical analysis, right? Like that's a subject, there's a subjectivity there, right? Like how can you ever know that you're capturing, you know what I mean? That that's just not a, uh, a byproduct of your own subjectivity. Right. Well, it's, um, I mean, that's a very empiricist uh, skepticism, you know, <laughs> that you have. I think that David Hume would, <laughs> would probably agree with you. He would say, you know, whenever you set up a dialectical system of contradiction or worse yet, a dialectical system of opposition, which is what most people are really doing when they think they're doing contradiction. Contradiction, of course, being internal, opposition being two external forces banging against each other, uh, which is not that's really what the dialectic is out. about. Yeah, that's a yeah, good distinction. Because um, I think I might even fall into that trap whenever I'm thinking about it, too. 
I think that that's the pop, that's the pop understanding of the dialectic, right? Is like a, a thesis, uh, antithesis, synthesis, but that's not, uh, that's not Hegel. That's not the way that Hegel envisioned the dialectic at all. In fact, that was the way Lacan famously thought he was making fun of Hegel for thinking that way. <laughs> and then when he turned around and offered up his solution to it, he was actually focusing on internal contradictions, which was really what Hegel had been talking about the whole time. So, um, it's a bit interesting, but to me, I think that there's a, even if you are very sure that you're focusing on internal contradictions, you're focusing on an internal, you know, bubble of forces that are all interacting with one another, all are all contingent on one another. And there's friction. There's, there's, you know, it gets stopped up places. It's not working right in places. And, and there's, there's tension and irregularity. I don't think that that necessarily always needs to be resolved to get somewhere. I think that maybe if you just learn what that tension does uh, and the ways that it can be harnessed or examined or kind of muted or made irrelevant in other social and political and philosophical contexts is more important than reaching through to a resolution of it. And I think that there's a, a reaction that human beings have where when we feel uncomfortable, we just start fucking clenching the nearest surface and biting our nails until we can get a resolution to it. We, we thrive on resolution. But when all you get is resolution, where do you end up? Watching the same fucking show you've already watched 18 times because you've watched everything else on Netflix. It's sitting on your couch eating fucking ice cream. Like, you're bored. You don't have any purpose. So there's... And, and I've brought up Camus a couple times. I think Camus really offers something very vital to this conversation, which is like radical acceptance. Like if there's going to be dialectical tension, just fucking buckle up. You know, like if there's going to be uh, world historical tension, there's just going to be that. And if, if you're really a materialist, if you're really a nominalist, you're going to find the rational in the real, which of course is a Hegel quote, but, and if he was an idealist, but I, I really take it to heart, like find the rational in the real, if you want to you know, really have a good idea of what's going on. And that means always, you know, breaking things down to first principles, relying on sensory input and not relying on abstractions that you haven't like, you know, it's okay to, to use your analytical mind and, and, and think around corners and, and use logic to interrogate things, but be sure that you're being rigorous about it and be sure that you're questioning things all the way down to the fundamental level, or you can't be sure that your analysis is correct. And I think, so this next piece, we kind of touched on this too, or this next quote um, from the reading is going to get into this and then take a little bit beyond that. We're going to look at how, at Deleuze's critique of Hegel, um, in particular, okay. his, um, in how difference, how he critiques Hegel in terms of difference. So difference must be qualitatively difference. Um, he references Todd May. He argues that Deleuze is, posi is not positing a world of absolute difference because this would make difference a metaphysical and abstract concept that stands above everything. It must remain right. open to the other, open even to the possibilities of the same. In this way, difference becomes difference in itself, not difference in opposition to the same. And I think maybe even that is like a calls back to that idea of how maybe most people look at the dialectic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially yeah, that bit about like difference becomes difference in itself rather than difference and opposition to the same. I think the difference and opposition to the same maybe is the common 
interpretation of dialectics versus difference becoming difference in itself. Yeah, I think so. Which is maybe another way to true. articulate the same shit, kind of what we mentioned earlier. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think it says the same thing. I mean, it's just kind of saying like, you don't want to do difference just because you're running around with difference in your hand, right? Like, you want to actually examine like where the contingencies of of difference are and where there are groupings of similarities and sameness, you know? And and Deleuze draws a really stark uh, contrast between repetition and generality, right? Things that are tied together by generalized concepts or things that are different instantiations of the same thing, but we know them to be different because we're having uh, a sense perception of them being separate from one another. So uh, I don't know. It, it really blows my mind when he says it must remain open to the other, even open to the possibilities of the same because it's like maybe you can go through the whole dialectical cycle and end up nowhere else than where you were before. Yeah. But you'll just be so high on the idea of the dialectic getting you places that you're like, I did it. I completed the German system of ideology. Like, fucking, yeah. let's throw a party. Like, But I think also just negating, like, the... Maybe negating the good aspects of the same. Or, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater is maybe the best metaphor I can oh, yeah. think of. I think so. But yeah, it's like it's you just have to a, be... it's a rejection of sameness. It's like when you're the you're the punk kid and you're 16 and you're like anything my parents say is good yeah, is bad. Exactly. And it's like okay, Steely Dan is actually good right. though. Like your parents <laughs> like a good band. Yeah, That's okay. Exactly. It's like just an un just op- opposition for opposition's sake. Right. Is the danger of that kind of simplistic interpretation of the dialectic. Yeah. Or difference definitely. itself too. Um, but to go moving forward, just to get at at least Newman's take on how Hegel essentializes difference itself. Difference, which cannot be inscribed with the structure of the general, it may be thought of as excess, which defies the limits of the concept. Oh, I like that a lot. Concepts can no longer adequately represent real differences. Difference is behind everything, but behind difference, there is nothing. Deleuze engages in a critique of Hegelianism, which privileges the idea over empirical difference. Difference for Hegel is seen in terms of contradiction that is always resolved dialectically. Difference is thus effaced by being dialecticized back into an essential, universal identity whose logic is unfolding. Deleuze argues that to see difference in terms of contradiction is to deny difference. Difference cannot be subsumed within the representative structure of the dialectic, it is always difference in its own right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I do too. I think that's really good. And I think it's just a really sharp critique of the way that Hegel, and I think also by extension Marx, uh, had a tendency to just, whenever there was an idea that they needed to crystallize so that they could do their ideological or materialist calculus with it, they would just crystallize it. And if it cut off a few of the corners and rounded a few of the edges and scrubbed the nuance, that was okay. And again, you know, doing, doing historical analysis like that has a lot of benefits, but 
of course, if you want to be scientific about something, critique of process is an incredibly fundamental part of that. So, um, of course, I don't think Deleuze is being scientific here, but of course, veering towards the direction of doing things as scientifically as possible, which of course Marx was trying to do. And, and I think every thinker that we've mentioned has been trying to do so. Uh, I think that's really smart. I think that's just like a really, really sharp and, and salient criticism of Hegel. I think this line in particular, Deleuze argues that to see difference in terms of contradiction is to deny difference, which I think is, that's super interesting. Do, difference cannot be subsumed within the representative structure of the dialectic. It's always difference in its own right. I, I don't quite grasp all of that. I like, I feel well, maybe, like it's, uh... I kind of, I'm like nodding my head, but I can't articulate the real like means... underlying what what it is that i like about that or you know what i mean yeah i i wonder if it's it's related to like um difference cannot be subsumed within the representative structure of the dialectic yeah where he says so it's to like, see difference in terms of contradiction is to deny difference i think is saying that by drawing difference as a relating relationship between two things you're connecting them unduly okay and that's not what difference is it's not this thing that ties stuff together it is actual material opposition right and we know that in our sense perceptions but in our conceptual world there's a breakdown because we want to categorize things together by difference and that's not actually how our sense perception perceives things to be okay yeah i'm that yeah i think you're right that's kind of like what i was what i was sort of formulating i think yeah so i think you're under something there it's 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 obtuse right it's like a hard thing to even (laughs) characterize because it in the whole point of thinking about it this way is to get outside of the trappings of language and categorization and signification And in order to do that, sometimes your mouth just stops moving. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I think this next quote, too, goes to this, this same phenomenon. Because there is no original model or identity to be repeated, there is an endless play of signs and symbols. Strip away one mask and one finds underneath not that original essence, but another mask. There is no possibility of getting to the original primary essence or being behind the repetitions because the essence does not exist it is itself another repetition or representation. The logic of representation is therefore subverted by infinitely extending it. That's interesting. So the, the like contradiction of representation, the fact that it's always going to be imperfect and that the meanings that we ascribe to things are always going to be breaking out and, and, and clawing out at the edges of our signifiers is subverted in social practice by just infinitely extending it, by just always going further and further, always developing a more and more varied and complex and 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 wide-ranging web of signifiers. But of course, that doesn't actually get it. Like you can count numbers on your hands and then and, you know run out of fingers. You can count numbers on grains of rice for a hundred million years, and you'll never have infinity grains of rice. You'll never have a one-to-one aspect ratio like picture of the universe, right? No matter how hard you study, how hard you try, unless you could actually have the sense perception of the whole universe. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. 
bring that up. And there's even different levels of infinity. Did you have you ever encountered that oh, yeah. idea? That, that kind of in mathematics, like you can add two infinities to one infinity, and you have three infinities. And like it, infinities can be different sizes and can be striated differently. Um, yeah, it's. I don't understand a lot of it. My my knowledge of math stops at like pre-calculus, but... Uh, I'm not even that far along. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I've seen some pretty cool YouTube videos when I was stoned real late at night. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some... I have to get a fucking mathematician on to like do Gödel's theorems and shit like that. Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. But uh, let's see. Um, discussing this non-conceptual difference and how that is a, a basis for this empirical pluralism that Newman's talking about. I'm going to read another quote here. This principle of non-conceptual difference is the basis for an empirical pluralism. Conceptual identity, as we have seen, is composed of a plurality of real concrete differences, which is kind of what you were talking about, and singularities. Mm -hmm. Concepts and abstractions are only masks that hide a sensible plural materiality in a world of real differences and intensities. There is then an eminent corpore- corporeality that defies all attempts at representation. Yeah, and this is what's um, which I feel like is, is literally what you just about. said not long ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm drawing from the piece True. too. Like, I, I read this thing <laughs> twice in preparation for this episode. Um, but there's there's something that always strikes me about Deleuze is that he seems always hyper concerned with immediacy. Right? It's like he says there is an Im- an imminent corporeality that defies all attempts at representation. It's like, as soon as you give a name to something, it's Change, gone. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like trying to say this moment now. And it's like, even as I snap my fingers, the moment is gone. Right. Right. And it's not just that way for time, but it is that way for our definitions of ourselves and, and other things. There's this permanent flux, this permanent state of difference that we're always going through in one form or another. And even as we like must encapsulate things and, and develop them into static ideas, uh, they become incomplete and they become more and more useless as we move away from that sense perception, that moment in time. Right. And I think that is, that kind of reminds me too of another critique I have of, of dialectics is whenever you're looking for that, it's like you're, you're, picking a point at which to observe. And in that right. moment, t- you know, things have already shifted and getting into like the, uh, Bergsonian notion of time that Deleuze is very like fam- familiar with. It's like these aspects of like past, future and present are all sort of like related and there's no, you know what I mean? Trying to like carve up time into these distinct moments is just kind of a shitty way to conceive of time itself. Yeah, well, it's telling that different cultures um, with different languages look at time differently. And it tends to be, in you know, it's kind of a chicken or the egg situation, which came first, the way that they observe time or the way that their language structures and arranges time. But like, you know, there are some cultures in the world, like to, to an American, the future is in front of you and the past is behind you. But there are cultures in the world where the past is to the left of you and the future is to your right, or the future is actually behind you because you can't see it. And you're walking backwards through life, looking at the past. So 
even in that, or even in the way that like verbs are conjugated, like there, there are verb tenses that English doesn't even have. And we have a bunch of verb tenses that other languages don't have. So obviously verb tenses are the way that we are categorizing time, the way that we are categorizing completeness of actions and, uh, you know, states of being and, and organizing those into shapes. So I don't think that there is any one like, totally unifying way that everybody experiences the past, the present and the future being interrelated. And and maybe that's built into the theory of subjectivity. Maybe that's part of being a creative nothing is that you're not even fully aware. Like, you know, if we were fully aware of how time worked, like you wouldn't look up at the clock after playing four hours of your favorite video game and thinking only 20 minutes had gone by and be all surprised, you know, you, you would just know. So I think that, that's what's really important about breaking everything down to a theory of subjectivity is it brings it back into the realm of sense experience and it brings it back into the realm of something that people can directly relate to. And uh, then when you have strong analytical you know, analysis on top of that, it makes it all the more convincing because it's tied back into things that people can experience firsthand. And I think that that's something that's really important to do with politics too. You can't just have a general like, oh, this is for the good of humanity and everybody needs to fucking pitch in no matter how hard it gets for the good of humanity. You know, people are going to start being like, what the fuck good is the good of humanity to me if it's not, you know, feed me or putting a right. roof over yeah, my Yeah, if it's so. this abstract ideal outside of my material experience and subverting yourself to an idea that is outside mm-hmm. of yourself and that you can't directly experience as well. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a lot of what Sterner gets at. And it's it's really cool to see the ways that Deleuze ties into this as well, because I'm a little familiar with uh, Deleuze, but, but not nearly as much as I am with Sterner. So. Yeah, and I think the relationship between what Sterner does and what Nietzsche does, and I think maybe that's kind of the, the overlap, is I think Deleuze is primarily really an heir to, to Nietzsche. Um, primar- mm-hmm. But I think he does actually... And maybe the piece mentioned it too that he did at least reference Sterner at some point. I forget which work yeah, it was. Yeah, he, he seems to be aware of yeah, who he was. Yeah, which is cool. Um, which is cool because unfortunately, it seems like nobody can figure out if Nietzsche was aware of Sterner. Yeah, um, because their work overlaps right. so heavily and contains so many of the same themes. Minor differences, but uh, it's it seems like Nietzsche would have been aware that he existed, you would almost, but there's no would direct it, yeah. evidence. I mean, obviously, yeah. 18th, 19th century Germany, you know. Yeah, it's <laughs> but not still, that like, big of a pool. It, you know what I mean? It, I'm not sure how, you know, I forget what the overlap. I think Nietzsche's a bit more, is younger than Stirner. I think he would have. Yeah, he was a baby when Stirner yeah. died, I believe. It feels like um, there's no so, way he wouldn't have been aware of him, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, Stirner was kind of like he his his ideas went through a few revivals. Yeah. He was never all that popular at the actual time of his writing. Um, he just had like a lot of pretty famous friends, so he stayed in the footnotes long enough to get noticed. Yeah. Um, but on to Stirner and a little bit about how, and this kind of ties into to what we kind of just talked about. Um, and I kind of define this as truth being sort of treated as a as a cudgel or maybe even the fixed idea um, mm-hmm. in terms of how Sterner views things. Rational, rational truths are always held above individual perspectives 
and Stirner argues that this is a further denial of individual difference. Stirner is not necessarily opposed to truth itself, but rather the way it has become an abstract, sacred ideal, removed from the grasp of the individual and wielded tyrannically above the plurality of perspectives. And that ties back into what we were saying earlier about when good and thoughtful heuristic analysis becomes a, a totalizing ideology that now you are using as the baseline for verification of all truth claims. Yes. And so you, you're taking something that you have done good research on and you have a pretty good working hypothesis about, and you're saying, I've solved it. You know, this is the end. You're, you're, you're Francis fukuyama <laughs> essentially. It's the end of history. Yeah. Liberal democracy wins again. And Stirner, let's see, to quote this quote I thought was really good and kind of furthers that too. It's like, Stirner believes that generalities like rational truth, which appear to be unified, are in fact made up of a plurality of differences, which I think is also very Deleuze. I think that's what Deleuze is getting at yeah. when he talks about difference as well. Yeah, I like that. And it's interesting how uh, when you when you draw out the more Nietzschean parts of Deleuze, how, how neatly they fit back into Stirner. A lot of people think there's not like, I don't know, like a, a, an ideal or an academic heritage to these kind of ideas, that there's not like a, a, a lineage to it. And that it has, it's only been thought of by like one or two crazy guys who thought Marx was bad or whatever. Like, yeah. um, it, there really is like a lot of thought put into this. And I think that if the same inclinations that make you want to be scientific about your socialism, the same inclinations that make you want to really dive in and, and read a bunch of marks and read a bunch of angles should also make you want to get down to these first principles and, and really call into question, you know, sense perception versus analysis and, and think about the flattening of subjectivity and think about the flattening of nuance when, when you break things down into these nice, neat categories. So, and I think, rec- I recognizing, think really cool. recognizing as well the the legacy of materialism that even someone like uh, Nietzsche has in his work, mm-hmm. you know, and like the like the genealogy of morals, like genealogy, and you know, Foucault extended this is a materialist uh, strategy. Yeah, for understanding, it's the historical. It's like looking at the historical development of ideology or concept or like whatever you know what i mean whatever uh noun you want to throw in there that's what genealogy yeah, well, it's a, is it's a meth it's a it's a materialist method because you're looking at literally the, you know what i mean like a history of sexuality yeah. uh well, madness like a, and civilization that's foucault right didn't like foucault didn't like using the word history right because genealogy has a connotation to it that says i'm going to contextualize all of this along the way. This isn't just a history of things that happen. Yeah. Like these are written in stone. This is the world history. It's actually a bunch of these contingent right. situations that have a bunch of individual viewpoints and contributing factors. And we're going to do our best to give you an idea. But part of the responsibility of somebody who's being rigorous is to let the reader or the, the consumer of the information know that they're not getting a complete picture, no matter how much detail may have been filled in. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I want to probably give me one. S- give me one sure. more. Sure, I'm probably going to skip some of this here. To, no essence. Um, I think we may pick back up on this this concept of the state here. Okay. Uh, 
There we go. Sorry. Um, so I want to talk about this idea of the the state being an embodiment embodiment of conceptual unity as a, as an abstract principle. The aberrescent image of thought for Deleuze is an authoritarian conceptual plane upon which centralized and essentialist discourses such as rational knowledge are based. These discourses are inextricably tied to political power. For Stirner, too, essentialist discourses like truth and morality are inevitably related to political power and to practices of self-repression. For Stirner and Deleuze, the state is a monstrous, monstrous, uh, monstrously <laughs> oppressive apparatus and the enemy of a corporeal plural life. The state is the embodiment of conceptual unity, which denies life by subsuming it within its centralized and essentialist structures, and which provides the ground for a whole series of discourses and practices of domination. As an abstraction, the state transcends its different concrete manifestations, yet at the same time operates through them. It is an abstract principle of power and authority that has always existed in different forms, yet is somehow more than these particular than these particular actualizations and which this i think yeah, this is like gets really i think to the heart of how i view the state and i think a lot of why i'm an anarchist is this particular critique here yeah i was gonna say this is a this is a very friendly little bit of theory <laughs> to uh anarchism and i i really like it because i think one of the things that it does is it highlights the way that the more a state insists that it's just a mediating force, the more that a state insists that it's just a representative force, you know, that's really when it is being its most totalizing, is when it is taking all of the signifiers and it's it's taking your signifier and it's flattening you down to it and it's saying, you exist now as a part of this you know, totalized society in which, oh, you have representation, oh, you can go vote, oh, you can go do these other things. But it's like, all of that presupposes that I have, you know, quote unquote, signed the social contract, that I have deigned to be totalized, that I have, you know, decided to be assimilated into the liberal democracy Borg. And I think that in a lot of ways, this kind of analysis where it's like, the apparatus itself is is what's taking all of the signifiers and scrubbing them away is what lets you know that something like liberal democracy, which, which takes all the signifiers and accumulates them, but then leaves them empty of content and has no actual social content inside is actually one of the most totalizing forces of a state that you could have. Absolutely. And this next bit, I think really drives this home. Deleuze refers to a state form, an abstract model of power, which organizes the dominant, utterances and the established order of a society, the dominant languages and knowledge, conformist actions and feelings, the segments which prevail over others. For Deleuze, the state is an abstract machine rather than a concrete institution, which essentially rules through more minute institutions and practices of domination. The state overcodes and regulates these minor dominations, stamping them with its imprint. And we we actually saw a section of this quote in the last episode where we talked about Stirner and his relevance to the postmodernists and poststructuralists. And I think that this is such, such an evocative line for Deleuze, the state is an abstract machine rather than a concrete institution. And I think that that's so, so, so important. The state is not the bank and the CIA and the judicial system and the president and Congress. That's not the state. That, those are parts of the state. The state functions through those institutions. 
But the state is the relationships of power yes. that operate between them. The state is the 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 hey, Bill Clinton calling up his his old buddy and all of these former presidents hanging out together. All of these senators shaking hands and oh, this is my nephew. Can you get him a job in your office? And like it's these minute little tiny moving pieces all over the place that aren't even directly responsible to one another, right? We don't have an autocrat saying like, nope, your nephew doesn't get promoted, your nephew gets promoted. That doesn't happen. But the totalizing force of the state is still there making those decisions. Just because there's not a person acting behind it doesn't mean it's not any more of a totalizing force, doesn't mean it's not any more of an inherently oppressive and dominative force in our society. I think that that's so, so, so important the way that, it, as it says here, rules through more minute institutions and practices of domination. Like, not to sound like my dad, <laughs> but it's the little things. That's how they get you. The little things. And it's so true. This next bit, I think, is a interesting because we're talking about desire Oedipus in the state in particular. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to read again here to really drive this home. Subjectivity is constructed in such a way that its desire becomes the desire for the state. According to Deleuze, the state, where it once operated through a massive repressive apparatus, no longer needs this. It functions through the self-domination of the subject. Very Foucaultian idea there. Yep. Moving forward, for Deleuze, moreover, moreover, desire is channeled to the state through our willing submission to Oedipal representation. Oedipus is the state's defense against untrammeled desire. Oedipal representation does not Uh. repress desire as much, but rather represents it in such a way that it believes itself to be repressed. Oedipal repression is simply the representative image which masks the real domination of desire. Therefore, the desire that is repressed in this way is real, material, and constructivist, it forms assemblages with other desires, creating the multiplicities that make up the corporeal world. The repression of this desire is the most brutal and despotic manifestation of the domination of empirical plural life by abstract concepts and generalities. Desire is repressed because unfettered it is a threat to the state. That's so interesting. It's kind of like uh, really just saying, like you know, we have so many more desires and complexes than just edible ones but the edible narrative the the edible story is so complementary to the hegemony of the social yeah. order that everything gets flattened down to that and if you can't make sense of it in terms of the edible complex well then maybe you're just not doing your analysis right and that's that's always deferring right to the hegemonic power of of the capitalist society that we live in. And I wonder if maybe, because you said that's a very Foucauldian idea, it's like, I wonder if maybe, you know, Foucault and Deleuze weren't influenced by, you know, when were they writing? 1960s France? 50s, right? 60s, 70s, well, 80s. 50s, 60s, so like, like coming out of World 80s. War II and Charles de Gaulle is trying to restore France to their great power status in the world. Like, uh, they must be pretty fucking fed up with all of the you know, the obvious flaws of liberal democracy. And it it only makes sense that, you know, as a Frenchman, they're like, well, we're going to do as rigorous of social historical analysis as this one we can. And uh, I just think that like, in a lot of ways, what Deleuze is remarking on here are the first seeds of, of 
what we see around us fully grown now. This flattening everything to the Oedipal desire, flattening everything to, you know, think about the way Twitter discourse works. It's like you're either a, a it, we borrowed it from the right wing, but now, you know, everybody uses it in earnest. It's like, oh, you beta. Oh, you cuck. Oh, you simp. It's like, are we really all betas, cucks, and simps? Or are there heretofore undiscovered complexes? Are we, are we just flattening ourselves in the Oedipal fashion? So it really gives me pause for thought sometimes when I see something like this that is like, 60 70 year old analysis and i'm like that's fucking happening right, <laughs> right now man i see it everywhere yeah i i think too the the connective thread for deleuze and foucault is definitely that drawing on the the nietzschean tradition in particular because i definitely in terms of method that's foucault you know picks it up from like the genealogy of uh, what is it the genealogy of morals yep right so that's what inspired foucault's whole project and of course deleuze as well another heir to nietzsche so I think mm-hmm. that's the commonality and, you know, Foucault wrote the, I think, foreword or preface or something to anti-Oedipus. And I think this okay. really even gets to like the the heart of the political economy that anti-Oedipus is, is kind of lodging is like, and you touched on this too, is like the, the Oedipal complex is like this kind of bourgeois construction. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, think about who Oedipus was, you know, he was the heir to a throne, right? Like, he he married his mother and became king. It's not the story of a fucking cobbler. It's not the story of a fucking longshoreman. You know, it's the story of of nobility. And it, it feeds into like, it works so well with the American ideology because, of course, we don't see ourselves as poor people. We see ourselves as temporarily embarrassed <laughs> millionaires or billionaires now updated for 2020. And I, Temporarily embarrassed Bloomberg's. <laughs> and uh, for anarchists, anarchists like yourself and I, I think this portion here is, is something to think about. For both Sturter and Deleuze, the state must be overcome as an idea before it can be overcome in reality. The state is a conceptual abstraction that not only rules over ideas, discourses, and thoughts, but also represents the individual to himself in a way that channels his desire to the state. Yeah, and that's so true. And it's like, there's, and I I think that not just anarchists can appreciate this, right? Because like, if you look at Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, he was saying, you can't just have a material revolution, you have to have a cultural revolution at the same time, you have to have an actual change in the way people think about their relations to each other, and they think about their relations to power. And I think as an anarchist, that's really true, too. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, yeah, kill the cop in your head. That's good. Do kill the cop in your head. You know, don't scold yourself for doing illegal things that are awesome and help people. But also, kill the politician in your head. Kill the fucking statecrafter up there, you know? Stop thinking about things in terms of like, oh, we need a, a power arrangement over here and we need to bureaucratize this little part of it to get it all running smoothly. It's like, you don't need to trust people to just do it on their own, to do it in a non-bureaucratic way. And better yet, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding like somebody who wants to turn the left into a cult, <laughs> do something that gets a cultural hegemony going. Do something that's mimetic, something that is self-replicating in other people through inspiration and through just just being, you know, like the equivalent of a catchy song line you can't get out of your head. Like if, if you say a piece of leftist propaganda, if you say a leftist meme, if you say an anarchist meme in a way that really grabs somebody's attention, two years later, they'll be doing their own goddamn research about it. And that's the kind of change that we need to see 
in our society if we're going to have a real revolution. You know, when we say educate each other, it doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm going to run a fucking theory workshop class. It literally means like just go out and spend time with your friends and help each other develop the language that it takes to think outside of the hegemonic capitalist realist, whatever you want to call it, structure that we live in right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I had talked to our friends, the, uh, you know, the guys from uh, mandatory OT about, you know, I kind of, I kind of see like the, the usefulness or the utility of the idea of, of Mal's cultural revolution, because you do sort of need to create this new, like, you know what I mean? You have to, it's almost like we're doomed in a sense to recreate these structures if you're not careful. Right. Well, uh, and, and in a lot of ways, I think Mao got it half right. And this is why I think anarchism and Maoism are actually much more compatible than a lot of yeah. people think. But uh, to put that aside, <laughs> um, Mao knew that you had to have a counterbalance to the cultural hegemony, something to disrupt it, something something else to have. You couldn't just have a rejection with no thing to put in its place. But what Mao achieved was a countervailing force, right? Something that would invert the system, like you said. And we need to learn from that example and think to ourselves, what doesn't just invert the system, but actually like gets us outside of it so that we can come up with you know, heretofore untheorized ideas about new and better ways to have relationships with each other, new and better ways to structure a society. And this is where I sympathize with many Marxist critique of anarchists, because anarchists are like, oh, let's just do it, right? Let's all just not go to work. And then we show up at the commune and then we hang out, and we do the thing and we distribute food and it all works out. Obviously that doesn't work out because people are not trained to, they're not socialized yeah. to live in a society like that. So we have to strike a balance or we have to figure out a way to like wall clip and get outside of thinking about things in these terms of like economies and like, oh, I'm really invested in this commune. You shouldn't be invested in anything. You don't need to make an investment in something. You just need to like it, put some energy towards it. And if you get a return from it, you do. And if you don't, you don't, you know, and you know what things you can rely on and you know what things are passion projects. And because what I want to do with my political theory is get something going where it's not like people don't have to change their lives to be a part of it, but they can still enjoy the niceties of life, even if they do have to be involved in combat situations to defend a piece of land they liberated or whatever, there's still a focus on community. There's still a focus on communal activities and remembering that the reason that we're doing this is not to have a, a perfect society, but so that we can move forward into a society where the contradictions that are happening in it are less harmful to people. I hope I didn't ramble oh, too much. Not at all, because <laughs> I think you're tapping into something that has been on my mind a lot is conceiving of a theory of desire that is post capitalist in nature. Like what does that look like and how, because I think our, our notion of what desire is, is so wrapped up in what capitalism is. And that makes sense, right? From a material standpoint, right? Our, our desires right. are coming from without and, trying to figure out okay how how does desire operate in a in a communist world or society well i think to start even though 
I would acknowledge that pretty much all of our desire is in some way tainted by or is interacting with the, the capitalist hegemony. We have to think about what forms of desire currently under capitalism we have that aren't explicitly tied into something that has to do with accumulation of capital, right? And I would start with maybe like affirmation from family members and friends and loved ones. Like that can take the form of gifts and that can certainly take the form of spending money for travel and all these other things. But at its most basic level, like, do I want my mom to laugh when I tell a joke because I'm quote unquote getting something out of it? Or is it just me getting something out of it in terms of like my, my pure enjoyment of something. And I think anybody who has a passion project, right? Like, you know, we're podcasters. Uh, I've been in bands and stuff. Uh, I do streaming. I, I do a bunch of things that are like, some people make their living off of them, but like, I'm just like, you know, getting some beer money here and there and it's a passion project. And like when I was in bands, I was throwing a lot of money out the fucking window and like never seeing a return. And why do we do these things? Because we do have desires outside of capitalism. We have weird, pure desires that seem to come from nowhere. Like I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So I spent my entire life getting used to the fact that sometimes my brain just tells me to do things that don't make any sense. And I think that there's something, you know, important to be learned from that because like, does my desire to be a really, really good Mario player make any fucking sense? No, but people can relate to it. So it's not OCD. It's just a skill. And I think that there's something, I think that there's something to be said for that. And I think that if we want to conceptualize desire outside of capitalism, we have to look almost at the kind of counterproductive desires people pursue under capitalism, you know, the desires people pursue that cost them money that don't get them social status. Yeah. And, and I think it will start to get an idea. Interesting. Cause I can't even, I don't even know how to develop that theory, but it's something that that question I think is one that gets very much overlooked. Uh, you know, e- even among anar whether it be anarchists or Marxists or whatever, but like there has to be a whole new way to deal with, desire and and how that functions well it's a it's a tantalizing question isn't it because if we could come up with a theory of what desire would look like outside of capitalism we could use that as a reference point to start untangling the way our desire is all mixed in with capitalist hegemony but of course it's a bit like asking me to see around a corner right like we would you have to live outside of capitalism a little bit to get to know what your desires are like outside of capitalism, because that's when you finally get that sense experience of it. That's That's when when you can finally be empirical. The material experience of it. (laughs) Yeah. The imminence as Deleuze would call it or or whatever. Good call. Good call. Um, Moving on a little bit, this article actually talks about rhizomes, which I think is very much in line with kind of an anarchist perspective. And I think what would be needed really to break out of this kind of hege- this like hegemony of capitalist desire well if you look at the revolutionary movements that i think have done the best job of rejecting hegemony instead of just replacing hegemony with an inverted version of it i would definitely point to movements like what's happening in 
Rojava and what's happening in the EZLN. You know, maybe they're not the most successful, widespread, material socialist revolutions in the world, but their grasp of how to tackle capitalist propaganda and the insidious way that it creeps into everything, I think is really, really powerful and is inspiring. And I think, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how much the Zapatistas are influenced. I know the, the, the struggle in Rojava is very based in modernist philosophy. I think maybe some of the subcommandantes in the EZLN have read like Foucault and, and Derrida and, and Deleuze and stuff. So I would be interested to know how much that plays yeah. into their ideology. Of course, it's all intermixed with uh, indigenous practices and all of this other stuff. But that that's what I like about it, right? Like the EZLN practices especifismo, which is like, you know, basically like a, a, a political philosophy of specificity. If there's a specific problem, it requires a specific pol- solution. And I think that ties yeah, in that very neatly does. with the idea of pluralism and empiricism and, and responding to things as they are and not as our categories. Right. Yeah, them. absolutely. I, I think you're definitely onto something for sure there. Um, towards this idea of the rhizome, the rhizome in the sense defies the very idea of a model it is an endless, haphazard multiplicity of connections. It rejects binary divisions and hierarchies and is not governed by an unfolding dialectical logic. It is a model that takes account of the pluralities and singularities and does not try to efface them with the dialectical logic, logics and binaries, oppositional structures. So very much, yeah, it's kind of tapping into that notion of peculiar, eh, peculiarity. Yeah, it's, it's just like... um. It's a way to conceptualize relations between things without flattening them because you leave them open and and contingent on the other sides that you're not linking them to things on. I think that's really smart. And then I think wrapping up on kind of the maybe highlights of the article itself is a good, I think a good side by side sort of relational description of how Stirner's unique kind of ties into Deleuze's idea of multiplicity. Like Deleuze, Stirner looks for multiplicities and individual differences rather than abstractions and unities. Abstractions like truth, rationality, human essence are images which deny plurality and deform difference into sameness. This is because any political action is capable of forming multiple rhizomatic connections, including connections with the very power it is presumed to oppose. These lines tie back to one another. That is why one can never posit a dualism or dichotomy, even in the rudimentary form of the good and the bad. Ah, oh, I love that. That cuts so deep. That's so, so, so good. I, I love how when it, it just highlights how when you, when you try to form a dualism, when you try to form, oh, this is in direct opposition to this. These are opposites. You're giving them a relationship. They're suddenly connected. Now they're no longer opposites. They're related. They're adjoined. They're they're uh, adjacent to one another, and somehow still in opposition. It it it's like the trappings of 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 flattening things through language bring you bring your face grinding up against contradiction at every turn. Difference must be left open, open to the other, open even to the possibilities of the same. So good. So good. That's still like the most cryptic line, (laughs) (laughs) even open to the possibilities of the same, because I'm still not fully understanding how I think how repetition is the 
the crystallized form of non-conceptual difference, right? And I think that's what this line is harping back on. And it's just, I wish it was clicking for me, but it's, I, I feel like I'm 90% yeah. of the way to the I, click. Maybe too, it's also difference, conceptual, also that distinction between conceptual difference and difference in itself, it's hard to really kind of get concretely in your mind too, which I think maybe yeah. contributes to that difficulty of like really, really getting at it. Let's see, even to the possibilities of the same. So things that, because I think, okay, because that's, yeah, because if you're looking at this as difference and same, like in this dialectical or like binary, then you're already being, you're being too reductive, right? You're over, you're, right. you know what I mean? You're seeing these as conflicting when it's more like, like you said kind of earlier, like there's a, there's a gradient there. There's like, it's not this distinct black and white issue of, of the same and difference. Like there's well, actual, there's not always there's actual difference. It's not just yeah. this like linguistic element of, Oh, well like the difference in language, the difference between signifier and signified and that sort of relationship of difference that drives language just from a conceptual or like, uh, what's the word? Um, like infrastructurally linguistics is a system of different or language is a system of difference. Right. Right. And I think that, yeah. So it's like, um, I think maybe the line is kind of getting at something about how, when you think about difference, if, if you're trained to think about something dialectically or even just have an intuitive sense of things, you're going to assume that that difference implies like a progression, like a movement but sometimes difference can be static and difference can just be the difference between something and they, they can just exist in that state of difference in sameness. And there's not always going to be like a relationship of movement across that barrier. Of right. Difference. Or even a tension necessarily. And like, I think that's right. maybe the, the opposition some differences are stable and some are unstable maybe is a way to think about it. like there's a gradient of stability of differences some generate tension and some don't some generate a little bit of tension some generate none or even le even leaving things open ended too is maybe an important lesson to take from it rather than like oh, oh we're completing german idealism <laughs> you know what i mean right. and it's over well, there don't close off the possibility because everything there is contingent difference, and you know that's going to drive whatever movement forward, or yeah. just be part of the experience of <laughs> continuing to exist. Yeah, well, I think that's really important too because Deleuze is always talking about exteriority, right? Like things systems and and ideas and groups of people create fields of interiority in which their systems of ideas live and make sense and Deleuze is always interested in the effects of introducing something external so if you're in a system of constant progress and constant dialectical shift Deleuze is maybe interested in what happens when you introduce a static force into that. Or if you're in a very, very static environment, Deleuze would be interested in what happens when you introduce a, a wildly dynamic force into that environment, or maybe trying to 
identify what kinds of dynamic forces are already in that environment, but might be getting overlooked because you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of sameness. Well, no, there, there's still difference here. There's still nuance. There's still particularity. It's just not doing that cool wave crashing thing you want dialectics to do. So you're not seeing it for what it yeah. is. I'll be interested to hear what, because um, I want to, I really want to get at the heart of this, like some of these things about dialectics and Deleuze and, and Sterner and how that really relate, like digging into that and figuring out like, what the fuck is he talking about when he's saying nihilism is the, or like Sterner's uncovering that nihilism is at the heart of the dialectic. A very provocative yeah, thing I would, to say, but yeah, I'd like to really, I'll have to ask the man himself what he means by this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I can't wait until you have him on. I, I'd be thrilled to listen to that episode. I was just thrilled when you got both of the Y theory <laughs> guys on. I'm a big fan of Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley. I was like, holy crap. And then you got Andrew Koch on. I was like, oh, holy crap. So you're getting some big name guests. I'm, I'm walking among <laughs> giants right yeah. now just being on your show. I'll be interested. I do want to get McGowan back on to really delve into Hegel and, and dialectics and, and get a real feel for that because I think that would really help help me kind of answer some of these questions or like figure out exactly like where my opposition to the dialectic is and, you know, uncovering kind of like exploring that and figuring out how that, how to integrate that into my thought and maybe what, you know, unfair criticisms that I'm, you know, kind of what biases are in my head just because of being anti-idealist and, you know, that sort of anarchistic approach. Well, that's good. You're, you're addressing, uh, I guess your, your due diligence <laughs> to have skepticism of yeah, your own skepticism. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's important. I, 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 I feel that emotion all the time. I, I think that's a good thing to act on. Yeah, because I'm wondering, well, one, like the question again that we mentioned too is, is this just a different way of articulating the same thing, which actually even kind of makes sense in kind of this Deleuzean eye of different <laughs> thing of yeah. difference, right? Well, is it, is it, yeah, is it just a higher resolution language picture of how we process sense perceptions? Maybe, but is there value in seeking out a higher resolution idea kind of map of the way that all of this stuff works. Yes, because I, and I, I think that that's kind of what, what was touched on earlier in the article. It's like in order to subvert the fact that we're never going to have a one-to-one -one map of ideas to reality and language to reality, we just keep getting more complicated and we keep adding details and becoming more and more Baroque about it and adding these little finishing touches and, oh, I really meant this and, oh, this has these subtle connotations and we're drawing little, you know, wood engravings on the side of the coffee table and we're like, it's done. And then the next craftsman comes along and he's like, oh, this flower could be this much more intricate. And I think that's in a lot of ways, just kind of what we're doing is, uh, is kind of just adding details and, and, and refining things and going back and, and changing and, design ideas but in terms of like having an ideology to to get you through the day and to get you through your life and so that when you're sipping lemonade on your back porch as an old person you can feel good about what you did like I think that that's a really good way to go through things and I think that it's going to be really productive and I hope that it will prevent us from turning really really good 
material analysis into really, really bad organizational tactics or turning really, really good subjective analysis into really, really bad like world material tactics. So that's, that's my honest, that's just what I want to happen. So <laughs> fair enough. Um, any other kind of thoughts in terms of the article? I think you kind of wrapped up your, summed up your thoughts pretty well, but anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I just, I, I just really like this kind of stuff because I think that there's something in it that can appeal to people of all kinds of different, uh, ideological and uh, philosophical backgrounds, and even people who don't necessarily have uh, a, a big understanding of like old philosophical thinkers and like dusty old European dead guys and stuff can still think about these concepts. And they, they're concepts that operate on such a fundamental level that I think we can all relate to them. So I hope that listening to me hit <laughs> my vape pen and do a little analysis about this has been illuminating for your listeners. And I just want to thank you very, very much for having me on oh, your hell, show again. Love to have you anytime you're willing, my friend. It's always a pleasure. Um, yeah, I would just would like, I think just to sum up my take on the article, like I said, I, I really want to know, I really want to dig into this, this difference, I think in terms of like, mm -hmm. or explore this idea of Hegel versus Deleuze and, and Stirner and like that whole world and like how they fit together. And is there really a distinction between how they're doing things and like, you know what I mean? Or like a real understanding of, of the dialectics. I don't know. That's something, like I said, there's been a lot of conflict on the, on the, on the podcast discord between different factions. Yeah, and I'll definitely, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to jump into that. I, I, I barely even oh, keep up hard. with the BP Lettuce I, discord. It, I have a hard time but, uh, with my own. If you're having hardcore Sometimes, philosophical yeah. disagreements in your discord, that's where yeah. I want to be because that's what, that's the energy sure. I missed from like Facebook two years ago and I'm not getting out of Twitter right now. Yeah. So. Uh, one of the big, I think conflicts, and I think it's particular, the Hegelians were very, uh, dismissive of accelerationism. And I don't know if you've had a okay. chance. I did an acceleration episode a few, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to, I think I listened to about half of it. It was pretty good. Um, I have a very mixed mixed bag of emotions on accelerationism. Yeah, I mean, same. My main gripe with it is that it seems to mean a different thing to right. every person yeah. I've seen use it. Other than that, um, there's strains of acceleration I like, of accelerationism I like very much. Um, there are some that I think are absolute fucking hogwash, yeah. and there's... You know, there's a middle ground. Uh, but anybody who's like, oh, we need to elect Donald Trump again so that conditions will be worse and we can finally have a 1917-style revolution is like, I don't agree with that at all. But uh, there are some forms of accelerationism that are like, you can't just keep papering over things with social democracy and expect them to actually get better in the long run. I'm like, Oh, there's truth to right. that too. So uh, I don't know, maybe there's a dialectical <laughs> tension there yeah, no <laughs> or even between the Hegel, Hegel and Deleuze, that dialectical tension. Yeah. So maybe we can't yeah. escape the fucking Hegel. <laughs> maybe we can't, maybe we just got yeah, sucked back exactly. into his orbit. Bastard. <laughs> But yeah, I don't have any uh, final thoughts other than that. I will let you, of course, plug your your awesome podcast before you go oh, yeah. and whatever um, else you're doing. If anybody wants to listen to me, if, if anybody wants to listen to me, just like get really high and talk about current events. That's what we do on Beep Beep Lettuce. It's a really fun show. 
Um, I stream video games at twitch.tv slash bpbletispod. Check out uh, my co-hosts video game stream. They do like a Let's Play series called Left Trigger on Means TV. They just launched their platform. Go give them 10 bucks a month so they can keep putting cool and good shit on their app. They have a Roku box oh, app. Dope. So if you're like me and you like to just sit on the fucking couch with a remote, <laughs> you can do that. And um, yeah, uh, I guess, oh, check out uh, Bryn from BP Bledis has another podcast called Generation Lost that's all about film critique. Uh, it's really fucking good. And... Uh, yeah, that's all. That's all my stuff. Uh, keep listening to the machinic unconscious happy <laughs> hour and keep huffing that fucking beep stick, my friends. Yeah, my, uh, I've DM Bryn. I'm hoping to get her on at some point when she's got some time. Nice. Yeah, she's a great guest. Um, I think you had yeah, Todd, I've had on Todd this, a, didn't you? a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of fun too. And then you should have Chris on, and he can tell you all about like uh, sneakers and uh, old cringe oh, videos yeah. on I, YouTube. I love sneakers. It's funny <laughs> I was DMing with Brynn, and she's like talking about because uh, we're friends on Facebook too. Um, she was talking yeah. about like Rick Owens and shit, which is like my favorite designer. Oh, okay, yeah, I don't even know who that is. I was like, is that a basketball player? <laughs> oh, what's one thing that's interesting about Rick Owens is his wife uh, Michelle Lame is was a like student of Deleuze and Watari. Yeah. Oh, she really? was like, <laughs> that's she's, wild. I don't know. She's like 70 or something, but she was kind of like grew up in that, like came up in that like sixties, seventies French kind of vibe. And so she was like an artist, filmmaker, kind of cultural phenomenon type type thing. So, wow. Pretty that's interesting. That's so cool. And I didn't know this until like later yeah, on. I, I, once I uncovered that, I was like, holy shit, that's that, that fucking rips. <laughs> yeah that's super cool i mean i tell people all the time i'm like uh you know i was born in the wrong generation i should have been a situationist <laughs> yeah, no kidding right <laughs> same i i totally yeah I, I definitely like the situationist thing quite a bit for sure yeah there's a lot to be said for it i love when they kicked out book chin <laughs> that's my favorite he was never a member and they kicked him out. They were like, you you can't show up to events. He was like, I don't show up to events. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, but as far as, we'll wrap wrap up the episode. And uh, again, if you're feeling so inclined, it'd be awesome. I am a lowly uh, customer service representative. So any of your financial contributions to the podcast does does help and it does get utilized. And again, you can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H I have changed the Twitter handle to at unconscious H-H also have changed the Instagram handle as well to unconscious H-H so check us out on on those but this will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week Peace out Cooper All right, that was awesome. That was a great episode.
violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. And so on and so on. Thank you.